1: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
2: And I'm April Glazer.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the morning of Monday, May 14th.
2: On today's show, we'll talk about an unexpected move by Donald Trump that could save ZTE, the Chinese electronics maker. ZTE is a major global maker of smartphones that has long been accused of working against U.S. interests. The company was busted for violating U.S. sanctions against Iran and North Korea. Now it may get a reprieve. We'll also discuss Project Maven, a Pentagon project to build AI for drones, which Google has been working on. This week, it was reported that around a dozen employees quit over the company's involvement.
1: We'll also discuss what one Apple blogger calls one of the biggest design screw-ups in Apple history. Now the company is facing a class-action lawsuit. And we'll update you on a developing story about a major security vulnerability that could put encrypted emails at risk.
2: And then we'll be joined by one of our favorite antitrust experts, Gene Kimmelman. He's the president and CEO of Public Knowledge, a nonprofit that focuses on tech policy research and advocacy, They've advocated for the protection of network neutrality, for example, and are a leading voice in D.C. for consumer protection on issues like big media mergers with broadband providers. He formerly served as the chief counsel for the U.S. Department of Justice's antitrust division. We'll talk to him about AT&T's antitrust trial with the DOJ as the company attempts to acquire Time Warner in an $85 billion bid. If approved, that deal could reshape the future of how people connect to the Internet, get their news entertainment and other mega mergers pending. And then there's the recent revelation that AT&T hired Michael Cohen, Trump's personal attorney, to do some consultation work for the company last year to get some guidance on how to work with Trump.
1: And we'll finish with Don't Close My Tabs, where each of us shares one of our favorite stories we read online this week. All right, April, happy Monday to you. How are you doing this week?
2: Good. Uh, And how are you doing?
1: I am ready to talk about all the news that has happened since (laughs) we since we last got together. What's going on in your world?
2: well actually I want to start by thanking uh, the many people who have been writing into us uh, at if then at slate.com we love hearing from you please continue to write we did get a comment on the robocall segment last week from a listener who said that she has found a way to hack it and it's something that I actually relate to uh, she said that uh, she's uh, used to live in Maryland but moved to Pittsburgh but she still has her own Maryland area code so she knows that when she gets a call from a Maryland area code it is likely a robocall. same thing happens to me when I I get a call from my 615 Nashville, Tennessee area code where I'm from. I know it is probably not somebody from Nashville that needs anything urgent, but likely a robocall, and I ignore those as well. Um, So thank you so much for uh, sending that hack in, and please continue to write for us. Yeah, I'm curious if other people have uh, found ways to kind of work around the deluge of robocalls that are plaguing everyone's phones these days. So great comment there. But on the news, um, I wanted to start off today with kind of a quick summary on what's been happening with the Chinese electronics company ZTE. Might not be a household name, but is certainly a massive company um, and was blocked from doing business in the U.S. Uh, recently in, in, in April after it failed to punish uh, its senior executives for violating sanctions. And, you know, that sent the company kind of into crisis mode since about 80 percent of its products have some sort of American components in them, like Qualcomm chips, for example. That has been making news over the weekend because Trump uh, decided to, to get involved.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it seemed like this was a, a done deal. I mean, ZTE got caught cheating on the sanctions that had been put in place. Right, they were uh, selling
2: to Iran and Korea when they weren't supposed to, apparently.
1: Right, so they were cheating, they got caught, and they got punished. They got what, what amounted in practice, I think, to a, to a death sentence for the company, uh, and now uh, what's what changed? How, what's going on?
2: It's hard to know what changed exactly. But Trump tweeted and that changed things as and that is one way to uh, deal with geopolitical relations these days. We've learned that Twitter is a forum for that now. Trump tweeted over the weekend, President Xi of China and I are working together to give massive Chinese phone company ZTE a way to get back into business and fast. Too many jobs in China lost. Commerce Department has been instructed to get it done, exclamation point. Uh and so he seems to be uh talking about job loss in China and he's concerned about that.
1: All of a sudden, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, he's always concerned about job loss. Uh it's I have not heard about his concerns with job loss in China yet. So this was a new tint.
1: Usually it's it's concerns with with China with China stealing US jobs.
2: Yeah, you know, he definitely um you know uses issues as kind of pawns, and, and that might be what he's doing here now, right? He might be using the ZTE sanctions as a bargaining chip for for other negotiations with China, as was noted uh, in a really useful New York Times summary that was published today by Paul Moser, which I recommend people check out to get up to date on on this issue. But we just wanted to kind of give a quick summary because it is in the news. It is unfolding quickly. And uh, a lot of people don't know what ZTE is. And uh, all of a sudden we're reading headlines about it. So it seemed worth breaking down a bit. Um, but that wasn't the only news we wanted to talk about. I wanted to gloss over that and, and really get more into this Gizmodo story that I read this morning that came out uh, from Kate Cogner, a fantastic reporter there. We learned uh, today that about a dozen employees at Google have decided to leave the company in response to its work with the Pentagon, specifically on Project Maven, which is a controversial program that Google is participating in that's supposed to be providing artificial intelligence for drones for real-time classification of, like, objects and people on the ground. Right. And remember, drones uh, generally uh, they do kind of reconnaissance stuff. So they, they they look at what's happening on the ground. They also carry weaponry and shoot and bomb people. Right. And so uh, there's a lot of concerns about what Google's technology is being used for. In this case, Google's employees have voiced opposition to the company's participation in the program since News about it kind of surfaced internally in February. Now, about four thousand employees have signed a petition opposing it. So this is definitely shaking the company up. This is kind of the first mass exodus of employees from Google. if you can consider it mass, but you know about a dozen people leaving as a result of their discomfort with uh, a program that Google is involved in so it's it's definitely uh, something to keep watch of it, it's It's fascinating to to see this unfold.
1: It's interesting to me. I mean, google has has for a while now, had sort of a queasy relationship with the with the defense uh, industry and and with the the U.S. military. Um, it acquired the robot maker Boston Dynamics, which I know you used to cover uh, on your on your robotics beat. They make those humanoid robots, like the Big Dog. What's the new one that came out recently?
2: Um, well, Handle is the one that they've been innovating upon, and that's the one that kind of uh, freaked people out for its ability to uh, hop over objects and as a as a bipedal
1: robot. And, and open doors, right? Mm-hmm. Like we really need a, a robotic dog that can open doors. That was um, one,
2: too, that came out earlier this year, yes.
1: Okay, so that was another one. So, But, but Google actually sold off Boston Dynamics partly because, I, I, I thought, it was partly because Boston Dynamics was... You know, building robots with a lot of military applications, and some people with at Google were uncomfortable with that. But you have a different reason why. <laughs> why they sold. Yeah, Why, why did they sell it off? I
2: think they sold off Boston Dynamics because uh, there is no uh, business proposition with Boston Dynamics uh, immediately for Google. Uh, Boston Dynamics was acquired with kind of Andy Rubin's large acquisition of multiple robotics companies around 2013, 2014. There's no business plan with Boston Dynamics. Um, you know, they are a company that traditionally received its funding from DARPA to uh, innovate on military-style projects. And uh, they're just not making a consumer robot. That's not what they've ever focused on. And as Ruth Peratt has kind of gone into the nooks and crannies of Google to tighten its belt and find out if there's really a business proposition for its, you know, mirrorhead sprawling projects across the company, Boston Dynamics, I think, also seemed like one that just didn't have something that was going to hit the market. Didn't pass that toothbrush test,
0: right?
1: Yeah, and Ruth Pratt being the, the chief financial officer, yeah. who's been who's been tasked with going through and seeing which of all Google's crazy projects are worth actually pursuing and which should be shut down so they can focus on others.
2: And the toothbrush test, I, maybe you can describe that. You know what I'm talking about there?
1: No, I would say I, I feel like I I've bel- heard of this, but
2: <laughs> I think it's the the idea that. Uh, if it's not a product that people will use, like a toothbrush that they really need every day, then then maybe it's not something that that Google would want to invest. in. this is uh, a philosophy that I believe was forwarded by Sergey Brin, but um, I may be wrong on that. So uh, listeners should should double check me. But uh, That's but interesting. The general, so self like,
1: driving a self driving car would pass the toothbrush test, but a, but a robotic dog that can open doors maybe not.
2: Google Docs would pass the toothbrush test, right? Google so, Docs so definitely would pass. Thinking it. about those types of uh you know ne- the level of necessity in a product.
1: But it's interesting. So they pulled back from the from the hardware, from the robotics hardware. But they're but they're now. I mean, they've they've really focused on being an AI company. But that involves now, it seems, doing AI that that has defense applications. And so they they once again find themselves uh, in this in this position where they're doing something that a lot of their employees aren't happy with.
2: I don't think it necessarily involves it. That's the thing, right? They are a massive company. Alphabet is uh, second most valuable company in the world, at least by Forbes's count, which I find to be a useful barometer. They can decide who they work with and who they don't work with, and they can certainly decide not to work with the Pentagon on building technologies that could potentially be used for autonomous uh, warfare, which is basically robots killing people, (laughs) uh, which is a terrifying proposition. And it's so terrifying, in fact, that today there was an open letter published by about 160 academics who signed on calling for Google to withdraw participation from the project and commit to not weaponizing its technology. In the future. And, uh, it's, it's a huge decision Google's making. Um, you know, just because they're focusing on AI doesn't mean that they have to put it in things that carry guns. In my opinion. Or, and these other people.
1: And that actually reminds me of a a, a quick update I should do on last week's show when we talked about the 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 jaw dropping demo at Google's annual developer conference last week, where they showed an AI making a call to a restaurant and a hair salon. We played you guys that clip uh, where it actually deceived the receptionists into thinking they were talking to a human being when they were talking to Google's AI. There was an immediate backlash. And April, you were quick. This was your immediate response too, like, "Hey, that's deceptive." Um, And a lot of people thought that and Google actually quickly backed down and said, you know what, we will make a policy that this thing is not going to call people up without identifying itself as a computer first. So we're not deceiving people with it.
2: Yeah, deceptive AI was something I read about in Wired actually a couple of years ago when chatbots were all the rage. And, and that was what everybody wanted to talk about at the time. And I was like, well, wait, they better let people know that this isn't real. We saw this with the Ashley Madison case, for example. Uh. You know, Ashley Ashley, Madison
1: being the site that that lets you the dating
2: site for adultery, uh, right. that was that was hacked and and you know all of the you know apparently people's uh, information that were involved with the site, uh, was was leaked or there was some sort of data breach involved with it. I I don't remember the exact specifics now because it was a number of years ago, but it was revealed that uh that men were mostly chatting with bots. Not with real women. And that brought up a lot of questions about deception and AI. Uh, and now we're seeing those surface again. I do think it's very important that as we continue to have more conversational AI products that we know when we're talking to a person or not. And, uh, and Google did uh, respond to a lot of the critiques that surfaced after they demoed that. So um, very interesting to kind of watch these things being actively iterated as, uh, as the public discussions kind of swell around these issues.
1: One last thing I want to say here is just that I think it's it's encouraging to me to see um, at, at some of these big companies, Google and Facebook, I mean, they're hard. We've seen that they're hard to regulate. Um, it's hard for legislators to understand the technology in a way that, that lets them regulate it uh, effectively. Or it's, it's at
2: least hard for legislators. I don't know if it's hard to regulate. It's definitely uh, been a challenge for them to, to do anything, uh, but I think they could if they had the will. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah. All right. So, so leaving yeah. that open, that possibility, but yeah. but the employees of these companies are probably in the short term, the most effective lever for institutional change. We've, we've seen it with Facebook where that's employee discontent has driven some changes there. Now we're seeing it with Google. So to me, that's an encouraging sign.
2: Yeah. I, I, I'm curious how this will continue to play out in terms of uh, employee activism, uh, you know, the, is, there's this idea that tech employees are a scarce resource, um, and they're, that's why they're paid these ridiculously high wages, and, you know, they go from company to company and make more and more money, and that's why we import, you know— talent from overseas and we treat them like like they're oil as opposed to people who had the conditions to learn and therefore uh, become uh, knowledgeable on these topics. I wish we invested more in education so we could have more tech employees. But certainly I am curious to see how employee activism is going to play out here, because one of the things that came out in this great Gizmodo piece is that the employees were saying that at Google, saying that they don't feel comfortable saying that they work at Google anymore. It's not something they're proud of. If Google is going to be working uh, on Pentagon projects, it could be used in autonomous weaponry. So uh, so you're you're right. Uh, I think that they're going to continue to play a more important role here. Who knows if, if a dozen or so employees is going to cause Google to pull out in this case, but they're certainly making some bad headlines for the company. Uh, well what were you looking at this week? No shortage of news, as always.
1: All right. One of them is, is affects anybody who has a recent Apple laptop. The other one affects mostly people who are really concerned about privacy and use a protocol called PGP for encrypted emails. Which should we talk about first? Let's
2: talk about people with new Apple laptops. My Apple laptop, I think is like probably a hundred years old. It's actually, I think uh, two years old, but around that. That's about equivalent. (laughs) Um, what, uh, what, what's going on with, uh, people with new Apple computers?
1: So starting with the late 2016 MacBook and MacBook Pro, uh, Apple came out with a new type of keyboard design, um, and instead of what's called a scissor design, they came out with something called a butterfly design for the keyboard. Oh, what, is that? Wait, them... what is
2: this? A scissor design? Is that what I typically use?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So most of them are, are. it's called scissor. It's, it's talking about the mechanism underneath the key when you press it. Okay. So how the how the uh, computer recognizes a keystroke. Mm. So Apple came out with a new way to do this that they thought would allow them to have these super thin keyboards, but to... Uh, to have the typing be more responsive and reliable turns out is exactly the opposite if you get even the tiniest <laughs> bit yeah right, right. <laughs> you get even the tiniest bit of dust under one of these keys in in a in a new MacBook or MacBook Pro the key might just stop working um and uh, for some people it's the L key that's a really common one for some it's the shift key so my wife actually got one of these uh, MacBook Pros. I've hated it ever since she got it because of the Touch Bar, <laughs> but that's a different issue. Okay. But now my hatred of it is justified because her Space Bar key stopped working for this exact reason, and you, there's no easy fix for it. You take it into the Apple store, and they say, "Oh, you have to send it to, you have to send it away to Apple for a seven hundred dollar repair." And now the company is facing a class action lawsuit over these, uh, alleging that these keyboards are actually defective. And Apple has been really quiet about it. They don't, they haven't said much about it, but now I think they'll have to. So
2: wait, Apple's been quiet. like, so this is pretty typical for Apple. Do you remember when um, the thing came out with them slowing down my phone or making the battery die faster? Oh, yeah. And it took them a minute to actually be like, okay, yes, we do this.
1: Yeah, they they said that they didn't do it for a long time. They're like, okay, we do it, but it's not what you think.
2: (laughs) I know, and that's why anybody who has some conspiracy theory about their electronics being broken are probably a little justified. <laughs> but like what with this keyboard thing, did they admit to it right away? Or were they like, come on, guys, you're overreacting?
1: No, they've, they've said almost okay. nothing about it. And, oh, and they so, said
2: nothing. So they're just ghosting on it.
1: Yeah, basically. Okay, I mean, and, and so my, when my wife took hers into the Apple store, the Apple store employees said, hey, look, don't don't tell anybody I told you this, but this is a really <laughs> common problem. I'm not don't allowed tell to tell anybody say that. I told you. I yeah. Think. Yeah, Because he's, he's not allowed to say that this that he sees this all the time with these defective okay, keyboards. We won't
2: tell anybody except on our podcast no names. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Um,
2: but uh, so so what's happening now there's uh, people are actually suing over this.
1: Yeah, so there yeah. was this Change.org petition with 21,000 signatures. Now Apple's facing a lawsuit. Uh, so I think they're going to have to do something about it other than just offering to to ship your computer o- away for several days and and charge you $700 for the fix. The, the, the Change.org posi- petition actually calls for them to recall the keyboards and give everybody a new one. That would be a huge blow for Apple. But then again, you know, shipping laptops that don't work is a pretty bad thing, too. It's, it's, so I don't know.
2: It's a huge deal. I mean, this really slows down the economy, I imagine, in some ways. I mean, people depend on their computer to work. If I don't have a machine, I can't work. Right. And, and I am not alone in that. And so to, to take my computer away from me from a, for a few days, you know, is, is, is pretty much severing my ability to, to participate in the economy.
1: I would love to see the study on how much the letter L is worth to the U.S. economy. <laughs>
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's a big deal. Uh, I, I'm just kind of putting, putting it out there. I don't know the, the, the numbers on this, but, but taking someone's computer away, especially as more and more people are telecommuting, as more and more people are, are working from coffee shops or freelancing, is to take away their ability, to, their, their, their viability, their way to make money.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. A lot of people just can't afford to ship away their computer for several days. Um, You just can't do it. All right, let's talk briefly, and and I'm going to really try to keep it brief because I'm very far from an expert at this kind of stuff, at encryption and security. But there is a big news story out Monday about a vulnerability in PGP and S-MIME. Is MIME how you say it? Yes. Okay. PGP and S-MIME. <laughs> these, are, these are protocols for email encryption. And you, you'll you know if you have PGP. It's short for pretty good privacy. It's a long time standard in, uh, in encryption of email. And you have to send, you have to put out a key and the other person has to use the key. And it's, a, it's supposed to be a way that you can send emails securely. And even if they're intercepted, people can't read those emails. Well, it turns out that there is a serious flaw in these protocols or or at least in the way that email clients handle these protocols that allows hackers to decrypt they, they, they take advantage of your own email client to decrypt these emails not just future emails but even they can go go back and decrypt emails that were sent in the past um, and so there there are there's like a short-term fix where you can tell if you care about getting encrypted email you can tell your email client not to read emails in HTML so that means basically you have to read the emails just in the text you can't get the oh pretty formatting or that kind of oh, thing. Oh, the free
2: software community is very happy about that. I'm sure plain text yeah, email yeah, saves the day.
1: <laughs> so, at, but but long term, they said it's just going to require an overhaul of these protocols, and that's that's just going to take that's just going to take a lot of time.
2: You know, it's uh, it's interesting because I'm sure most of our listeners do not use PGP or GPG, which is the free software equivalent. I'm sure many do. And to those who do, uh, kudos to you for being able to figure that out into your workflow. Uh, I used to use it regularly, particularly when I worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I um, have helped many uh, activists and, and, and other folks who had a, a strong need for uh, email security. To use it and download it over the years, um, I don't recommend people use it anymore. And at least in, in my communities, people have been saying for at least a year and a half—I want to say two years—that uh, it, it's it's Swiss cheese, it's not reliable, uh, it's easily hackable, and uh, that people should be using Signal, which is uh, created by the nonprofit Open Whisper Systems, uh, which is a, a text message encryption app rather that allows you to send files as well and that's what i use now to get files is, is signal i don't use pgp at all anymore
1: yeah and that is one of the recommendations from the eff and others is, is use signal or another another messaging app with end-to-end encryption if you're willing to trust if you're willing to trust facebook as a corporate parent um, whatsapp also has end-to-end encryption
2: yeah you know the one one thing with the uh, encryption protocol, I'll add and and you know, at least with GPG, which is a free software version, is that this is a project that requires people to often volunteer time to keep it going. Um it is a, a cornerstone email security tool that uh, has been used for for many, many years. And when these free software projects aren't funded, then they are not uh, kept uh, in order. We saw this uh, with Heartbleed. We see this with like other major holes in security products that are used kind of throughout the internet that aren't getting the love that they need and the the funding that they need in order to be kept going. So this might be somewhat reflective of that, but uh, it's certainly you know news to people. You know, particularly after Snowden, uh, it was kind of something journalists would would signal like, hey, I'm security focused. I have my PGP key in my uh, Twitter bio. And you know, as with all technologies, they they pe- appears to be having kind of a sunset right now.
1: Yeah, all the all the Twitter bios that used to tell you their PGP key, they now say DM me for for Signal or for WhatsApp. Um, the last thing I want to say about this that I forgot to say is we talked. I did a tab a couple weeks ago about how they name vulnerabilities. This one has a great name. It's called eFail.
2: eFail. Well, to those who are using PGP every day and you need the security on it, perhaps stop um, until they figure this out. Uh, but good to good to note and and definitely maybe a. a, a Moment in security culture history right now that we're witnessing. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll have our interview with Gene Kimmelman, formerly with the Department of Justice and currently with Public Knowledge.
0: Our guest today
2: is Gene Kimmelman. Gene Kimmelman is the president and CEO of Public Knowledge. Previously, he served as chief counsel for the U.S. Department of Justice's antitrust division. And before that, Gene was a vice president at Consumers Union. He also served as chief counsel for the antitrust subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee, all of which makes him the perfect person to talk with us today about the trial over AT&T's massive $85 billion merger with Time Warner. The deal was challenged by Trump's DOJ and went to trial, making for a landmark antitrust case. Closing arguments came at the end of April and were waiting for the verdict. Meanwhile, it's continued to make headlines after it was revealed that AT&T had hired Trump's own lawyer, Michael Cohen, to advise it on how to work with the Trump administration. But for now, Gene, if you could just tell us what the trial was about and what the DOJ opposed here with the merger and just kind of what's at stake.
3: Sure. So you have to think about what the cable and satellite video market and the broadband market looks like today for most consumers. How many choices do you have in your community to get a big package of video programming uh, from cable or satellite and your high-speed Internet service? Most people only have one or two, if you're really lucky, three choices. Mm -hmm. AT&T happens to be one of those because it both owns – Old telephone wire systems that have been upgraded to provide broadband a service called Uverse but they also last uh, year or two years ago bought Direct TV major satellite provider of uh, big packages right. of video service, so they are one of the biggest players in the broadband and video distribution system, um, right next to Comcast, which is maybe slightly larger, maybe uh, slightly smaller, depending on how you count the numbers. So they're the two dominant players in in the country. And what AT and T here is buying with Time Warner is a major su- studio and a lot of television programming, a lot of channels: TBS, TNT. CNN, HBO. So they're buying content. It's considered a vertical transaction. Time Warner and AT&T aren't in the same market doing the same things. They're adjacent to each other and they complement each other. When you want to get a big package of TV service or if you want to just get HBO, you most likely need to do it through AT&T. So they're emulating what Comcast did in a market that has very few players. So the Justice Department looks at this and says, they said very fundamentally with a second company vertically integrated, just like Comcast, the two were a danger to actually coordinate, not quite collude, but something similar to it where they are each other's biggest suppliers and customers. They know each other's prices, terms and conditions. There's nothing illegal about that. They have to deal with each other in the marketplace. But yet they'll know everything about each other. They'll kind of be able to set the standards for prices, terms, conditions for video distribution and importantly for whether online can compete effectively against traditional cable and satellite. So the government sued the block and said, uh, we just don't think a remedy works at at this point. Um, Even if it did work somewhat for Comcast NBC, we don't think it can work at all. So that's why we are in court today waiting for the judge's ruling.
2: Right. And just to clarify, we're talking about one company not only owning the pipes that deliver you content, but then also owning the content that travels over those pipes. And, you know, when it's just two companies in a single market, they can say, well, why are we charging $50? Why don't we both just charge $70? Right. And that's not necessarily competition. That's not a healthy market that uh, that will really give consumers the best way to get their information.
3: They won't necessarily say to each other let's charge 70, but <clears throat> you know, you've experienced this with airlines too. All of a sudden one charges a baggage fee. A next day or a week later, another one charges a baggage fee, and it's the exact same price. Did they ever talk to each other? No, they didn't have to because they can kind of follow each other and there's nobody else in that market to challenge them. So it's that kind of collusion that you worry about.
1: Right. And and of course, you're also worried probably if you're one of those content producers that is not uh, merged with one of the pipe owners, right? So if they're, you're worried about them
3: prioritizing their
1: own uh, entertainment or information content somehow.
3: Absolutely. That's right. If you own a, a competing news channel or you own a competing movie channel or you own just a different entertainment channel and you want to be you know, placed well on their system, you want to get uh, a fair payment for your content, you also want to be able to distribute your content online with other distributors, you might be beholden to a company that has control over the transmission pipe and a substantial number of the customers you need to reach. So there's a big question in this case, as there was with Comcast, of whether AT&T with this ownership of programming would have both the opportunity to discriminate against others, and the incentive to favor themselves and harm their competitors. The Justice Department said they would. Many of us on the outside looking at it agree with that. And obviously, AT&T and Time Warner are vigorously challenging that.
2: Companies like AT&T and Comcast have argued in the past and and AT&T has argued recently that they need to change their business model so that way they can compete with the behemoths like Google and Facebook. You know, AT&T and Comcast are not in the top five most powerful companies in the world. Like these Internet companies are that kind of are essentially advertising companies that, that work on, you know, massive amounts of user data collection. That law has changed that used to prevent ISPs from collecting user data or not prevent, but rather uh, limit the way they were allowed to. Can you speak a little bit about how these Internet providers are seeking to compete with
3: Google and Facebook? So this is one of the most important decisions the judge has to face. And I believe that very cleverly, the AT&T and Time Warner lawyers have tried to pull the wool over the judge's eyes a little bit here by talking about the enormous other players, um, what they say, in the market. But it actually is a sleight of hand because it's not in the market. Google and Amazon and Facebook are big tech companies dominant players in their own right for what they do but they do not offer us 250 channels of video and pay-per-view and movie channels and they don't offer the broadband themselves. So what's interesting here even today in the news there's a there's a major New York Times story about how we now have more online advertising than we have in traditional television. So right. the world must be changing but What the companies have tried to convince the judges. Um, that is the world you need to think about, not what the actual consumer faces every day. In the real world, the consumer faces, you have to buy from the transmission company, AT&T or Comcast or a Charter or a Verizon. There's no place else to go. You can't go directly to Google or Amazon and say, you know, deliver me those 250 channels. It doesn't work. So the reality is you're beholden to one of these companies like AT&T and Comcast. So we're hoping the judge will see through that. And just see where is the real gatekeeper role, where is the real power in the marketplace, not who's the richest, who's the biggest somewhere else in the world, but where do consumers feel constraints about choice, price, and quality offerings.
2: You know, and and finally, I'm curious, where do you expect the judge to land on this? I was not expecting Trump's antitrust uh, division of the DOJ to oppose it like they did. And and they did. And uh, I'm curious where where you expect this to end. Is there any lever of change to pull to kind of stop this merger from happening?
3: Well, it's very hard to say um, the judge Um, was very skeptical of a lot of the witnesses um, uh, and pressed back against the government very forcefully. But it's not clear he was convinced with AT&T's argument. I think there's a strong case that's been made that there should be liability, that there's both the opportunity and the incentive to discriminate and harm competition and drive up prices for consumers. I think there's probably a more complicated discussion about do you have to break up the company or is there some other remedy that could possibly work like the government tried with Comcast and NBCU? So I'm hoping that the, the judge will at least see that there is a violation of law and a problem to fix.
1: And meanwhile, there's been a scandal over AT&T's hiring of Michael Cohen, uh, Cohen being Trump's own lawyer. Uh, they hired him for $600,000 last year for political consulting that sounds on its face sort of like corruption or cronyism. I mean, presumably in a country with the rule of law, you shouldn't have to hire the president's friends uh, and confidants to get his administration's approval on a big business deal, or at least that shouldn't be an effective way of getting uh, his administration's approval. at and CEO Randall Stevenson has since called it a mistake.
3: We know it looks bad. How bad is this really uh, in your view? Well, it's really hard to say. Welcome to Washington. Welcome to the swamp. Um, you know, it, I don't, I wouldn't fault anybody, any company, any nonprofit, anyone who in the middle of a policy fight said, we need to understand better the way the administration thinks about things or the way the president thinks about things. Now. Whether it's appropriate for Michael Cohen, the lawyer for the president, to be setting up a separate consultancy and be kind of on the side looking for ways to make money, I think that's one set of questions you have to ask. And you know, what's appropriate there and and what did the White House know about that and how did the White House feel about that? There certainly are enormous appearance problems about all this. And I have to believe that's why Randall Stevenson um, was so upset with how this played out for his own company. Um, but in general, the idea of looking for ways to find people who um, know the thinking of decision makers, I mean, that's, happens every day in all different policy areas. Um, but what you see with the kind of money being paid, you really see how money drives politics in Washington, uh, not for just this one case, not for this one company, but across the board.
2: Now, Bob Quinn, who headed uh, AT&T's infamously large army of, of lobbyists, stepped down. What's the significance of that?
3: You know, it's hard to say. It, it It's hard to believe that someone like Bob Quinn, who's a professional, has been at this for years and years and years. I'm sure it, I knew him to play the game fair and square like um, so many other players within AT&T and other companies. Um, you know, it's hard to believe that this is all somehow his fault. But it, it's a signal that, you know, so, this was big. This was not just a little appearance issue. This is a lot of money to the president's lawyers. I don't even know if we know everything about what was going on with meetings and discussions and, you know, what, what was happening there, how we even know the details of how much AT&T paid. Michael Cohn, you know, is related to other litigation and other leaks. So I don't know if we know the whole story about this. But I would say in, in observing AT&T for many, many years, they play hard uh, they fight aggressively for their interests, but they usually don't fire people for just doing their jobs. So I, I just don't know if there's other things we don't know yet about what the whole story is here.
2: Certainly. That was a detail that shocked me. Quinn always seemed like an immovable force on the hill.
3: Yeah. And a, and a very, you know, a very straight shooter. I mean, you knew where he was coming from. You knew what he was fighting for. I was honest, you know, fought for his company, worked for them forever. Um, I, you know, I was quite stunned myself. Earlier you alluded to Facebook and Google as a sort of red
1: herring in this AT&T Time Warner antitrust case because as you say they're really in a different business. But I wondered if you could talk briefly about whether the way antitrust folks view Facebook and Google and other tech companies is also evolving. I mean in a case where you have Time Warner and Comcast as the only two potential uh, internet connections that, you know, it seems like pretty clearly that raises antitrust issues and we're seeing that play out now. What about the fact that functionally Google has, you know, something close to a monopoly when you want to search for information online? What about the fact that Facebook is really the only ubiquitous social network um, and it's, it's a dominant uh, distribution channel for news? What about Amazon being the, the big gorilla when you want to buy something online? Is the thinking evolving on whether those types of uh, seemingly monopolistic circumstances merit this same
3: level of scrutiny? Well, I think so. And I think those companies have always been under antitrust scrutiny. Um, Even when I was at the Justice Department, um, there was a challenge of a Google transaction, vertical transaction similar to AT&T Time Warner, uh, that was worked out with a consent decree. But what that meant was the Department of Justice found that it would have violated the law for that transaction to go forward. And then there was a full licensing of um, uh, a software company that that, that basically did um, airline reservation systems and that was made available to everyone in the marketplace. So it's not the first time these companies have come under government scrutiny. It certainly is something that deserves a lot more attention but it deserves attention for precisely what they do and whether they have broken the law. Being large is not a violation of the law. If we have a problem with search being dominated by one company, if they haven't get engaged in anti-competitive behavior, then we have a different problem of do we believe there's a danger of discrimination? Do we have, believe there's a danger of Google favoring itself? Similarly with Facebook, if we have this, this massive social network, if we really don't think anyone else can compete, have they done anything to actually drive out competitors or prevent others from entering? If so, then there's an antitrust problem. My guess is the bigger problem is everybody has come to use these. In in the, in the video case of AT&T and Time Warner, we talk about must-have programming. Do you really need to have TBS and TNT? In the online world, it's kind of like I would argue there's a parallel of must-use. In order to reach my friends, my acquaintances, business contacts, in order to be informed about politics – Do I have to use Facebook? Do I have to use Google? If that's the case, then they've become more like essential parts of our daily lives. And there I think we're going to need a standard for the large uh, tech platform companies to not abuse their position in the marketplace, to not favor themselves and not discriminate against others. I'm not sure antitrust law will capture all of that kind of policy need. Um, What we – what's most important in in media and telecommunications and internet uh, um, service providers, we've had a regulatory agency, the Federal Communications Commission, that is there to promote the public interest. You can question whether it's doing it today. But nonetheless, it has that function and it works parallel in tandem with antitrust. The problem for Facebook, Google and I'll even mention Amazon and others – is there is no agency that they have to answer to to serve the public interest or to promote more competition. And that may be a real flaw in our policy framework today that we need to address.
2: Right. And, you know, when Facebook fails, it's, it's at the level where they're not just failing consumers, they're, they're failing society, right? And, and when it's at that level, it's, it's definitely, we have to wonder if we have the scaffolding to address that. I'll also add, it was reported in the New York Times that, uh, the person who's being considered to fill a seat in the Federal Trade Commission that's open now is Andrew Smith, who, uh, is a lawyer that has represented Facebook, Uber, and Equifax, who all have open Uh, cases right now with the FTC and he would have to recuse himself from those. So uh, there is a question of whether or not the agencies that are tasked at looking over these companies really are uh, set to do a proper job of that. Gene Kimmelman, we're going to end there. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: One last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best stories we saw online this week. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what's your favorite story you read this week?
2: So my story, uh, like so many stories that I want people to take a look on, is not a happy one. Uh, It is entitled Black Activist Jailed for His Facebook Posts, speaks out about secret FBI surveillance. It was in The Guardian a few days ago, and it is about a man named Raheem Balogun. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, who spoke out against police brutality on Facebook and uh, was an activist and organizer and – is believed to be one of the first people prosecuted under a secretive surveillance program um, to track uh, activists in the Black community. And uh, he was put in jail uh, for venting on Facebook about uh, police brutality against African Americans last year. And, uh, and while he was in jail, he lost his home, uh, his job. He missed the first months of his daughter's life. Uh, and it just put his whole life into disarray. And it was because of stuff that he said on Facebook. He didn't make specific threats against people. He said stuff that was suspicious.
1: Yes. So what were his posts in reaction to?
2: He became active in protests against law enforcement. And this was at a time when there were very high profile police killings of innocent uh, black men and women in America, including Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And uh, he was involved in in some protests, you know, against law enforcement violence. And he had vented online that, you know, people who had engaged in violence against, you know, law enforcement uh, were heroes. Uh, he said that he uh, was just venting at that time, but he didn't, like, make any threats against law enforcement. Uh, he also attended um, a rally where people were, you know— Chanting things like a, a the only good pig is a pig that's dead. Still, he wasn't making specific threats, and he was arrested for this. This was at a time when people were afraid of, and still are, <laughs> afraid of the the police, and and were uh, you know expressing that on Facebook. And uh, and he was arrested for that. He was an activist locally, but it didn't seem like they had really good evidence to pull him in. And it's very extreme reaction to uh, to something that, that that wasn't a threat. One other thing I'll add is that in the trial, the FBI said that they, they learned of, uh, this particular protest that Bullagoon was, uh, involved in because of a video that was on InfoWars, right? Which is Alex Jones's kind of far right conspiracy theory site. And, you know, that means that they were using, uh, a conspiracy theory video, an Alex Jones video to kind of justify Uh, you know, looking into to this particular activist's actions. And and that's also a very disturbing thing that came from the case. I really recommend people read it to kind of understand uh, how deeply law enforcement is surveilling social media and who they are targeting and the effects that this can have on people's lives. A a, a very important story um, that I'm going to be continuing to follow. Will, uh, what tabs did you uh, have open this week?
1: All right. My story was originally reported by The Telegraph in the UK. That's a paywalled site. I'll give you the, the synopsis okay, from The journalism. Verge. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, That's I mean, my little let's, let's support. All right, for... You know what? All right. You know what? I will give you the Telegraph version. This is from The Telegraph in the UK. The headline is News Agents and Corner Shops to Sell Porn Pass Access Code to Allow Adults to Visit X Rated Sites. All right, so what is this talking about? This is talking about a law that went into effect in the UK last year. It's called the Digital Economy Act. Part of this law was that if you are a porn site online, you are legally responsible for verifying the age of the people who view your content and not just like ask them but actually verify that they uh, are are 18 years or older and there was some controversy over this because how do you do that without invading people's privacy and uh, originally the idea was that you would have to sign up for this online database and register as a no as a porn viewer in order to get access to these sites, they've now come up with a new compromise where you can go to a a corner newsstand in the UK and uh, get this code that they'll give you that will give you access to porn sites, and you have to prove to them that you're over 18, but maybe at least you won't be uh, in a database. I just, I mean, it's interesting. Of course you're going to be, that's the whole thing
2: is you're in a database if they're taking your name. Where else would it go? (laughs)
1: Yeah, so they, well, they won't, I think, I think they won't take your name. They'll just give you the code. Although I don't, I'll I'll admit, I don't know the exact details of it. But the idea is it's supposed to be a little more anonymous.
2: I mean, is anyone really going to do this? I think the answer is
1: no. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that's the question. How far will people go to get their online I don't think it's
2: going to stop any. I don't, I do, like, porn is a massive percentage of the internet. I do not think that the UK's attempt to card people before accessing porn is going to work.
1: It's interesting, just because the U.S. hasn't done that much to try to crack down on on online porn. So it's interesting to see what happens when you actually do try to crack down on it. Um, and the thing that it reminded me of though was, like, I mean, in the old days before the internet, I guess if people wanted, uh, you know, t- to see pornographic pictures, they did have to go to the newsstand and actually buy those magazines oh, yeah. that had the cover over them. Uh, so there was, you know, it's in that sense, I guess, it mirrors the way it used to be back before the internet.
2: Yeah, I just don't think it's going to work. You know, what I'm more concerned about with porn online is that it feeds uh, people malicious viruses and what have you onto their computers and that it's a way to um, exploit people's CPUs, perhaps, or to uh, put all kinds of surveillance products on people's computers without them knowing. And I'm less concerned with the fact that underage people are looking at porn because underage people will always look at porn. And I just don't know how they're really going to stop that from happening. But uh, something I kind of want to keep watching because it's kind of funny to me.
1: That's an interesting point. I wonder if somehow like requiring registration could make porn sites clean up their acts and become less dangerous. I mean, aside from the puritanism of the the law. I think
2: the only thing that would make porn sites do that is if they were somehow required to do that specifically, not (laughs) sign people up to watch porn. All
1: right. I don't know if that's a good note to end on, but it is the note we're going to end on. That is our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod.
2: You can also email us, and please do, at ifthen at slate.com. We love hearing from you. Send us your questions, your show and guest suggestions, or just say hi.
1: Yeah, and I should say, I, we haven't gotten back to everybody who's emailed us, but we do see them all, and we really appreciate your feedback, and I'll try to get a little bit better about actually responding. Uh, you can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus. April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Jean Kimmelman.
2: And if you leave us a comment and a review on iTunes, we would be forever grateful for you for doing so. It really helps boost our show, and it helps more listeners find out about us.
1: Yeah, I know we're asking you guys to do a lot of work here. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Email us, for... read us.
2: No, but uh, any of any of those things would be great. Or just listen. I'm actually just impressing anyone listens, so thank you. <laughs>
1: We, we do really appreciate you being part of the show. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara.
2: And thanks to Jesse Nichols here at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California. We will see y'all next week.